0: Well, good morning. Hey, it's good to see everyone this morning. It's some good singing, uh, some really good singing. I think the power of the cross may be one of my top five songs right now in Christian music. Absolutely love the message of that song, and so thank you for singing out and uh, getting our hearts ready to look into the Word of God. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter ten. We're going to finish up the chapter today. Uh, if you've looked ahead, you know that there's twenty one chapters in uh, the Gospel of John, and so finishing up chapter 10 today, that'll get us almost halfway, and so we have quite a bit to go, but um, it's been an enriching study for me. I hope and trust that it's been an enriching study for you, and there's much here in our passage today that we want to consider And so while you're turning to John chapter 10, I would be remiss not to welcome my youngest daughter, Allison, her husband, Lucas, and our newest grandbaby, Isabella, uh, who are here with us. They just moved up from Florida, and we were over there this past week trying to help them get settled in, and uh, we were sitting on the couch, and we had just unloaded some boxes and opened some boxes, and we're sitting on the couch getting ready to grab a little bite to eat, and... All of a sudden, two little lizards uh, jumped out of the box, and so they brought a little slice of Florida with them. Uh, of course, Lucas and I love that, and we were like, hey, let's, let's, let's save them. So he made a little home for them, and so they're living with them at their house. Well, hey, I, I want to begin uh, on a serious note this morning. I want to begin by asking a two-part question, and here it is. How committed are you to Christ and His church? How committed are you to Christ and His church? And I ask that question uh, because I'm afraid that we are moving much closer to finding out the real answers to those questions. This past week, I read an article that began like this. Anti-Christian hatred is accelerating in the United States. According to a Christian nonprofit that has tracked violence against U.S. churches since 2018, the Washington, D.C. based Family Research Council released its annual Hostility Against Churches report last week, finding there were 436 hostile incidents against churches in 2023. This is more than double the number tracked in 2022 and more than eight times as many as the group found in 2018. These acts of violence included vandalism to church property, arson, gun-related incidents, bomb threats, assaults, physical threats, and interruption of services. And and while we don't like that at all, uh, none of it should surprise us. In fact, in some sense, it validates what Jesus, who's the head of the church, said to his followers in John chapter 15, verses 19 and 20, when he said, if you are of the world... The world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So as we've navigated through the gospel of John, we've seen repeated uh, persecution and attacks on Jesus. And we're going to see another account of that today as we look at our text. It's a pretty big chunk of scripture, uh, but uh, it is a really powerful one. And so let's look at it. I'll read it to you, uh, beginning in chapter 10, verse 22, all the way through the end of the chapter. Verse 22, John chapter 10. At the time of the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. And the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of My hand. My Father, who has given them to Me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone Him And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. From which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, And he eluded their grasp. And he went away again and beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. That's John the Baptist. And he was staying there, and many came to him and were saying, well, John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So really, as we look at this this morning, I see five steps to consider as we walk through this encounter. And so that's going to be our approach this morning as we tackle this text. And the first step is the setting, the setting. Again, verse 22, at the time of the Feast of the Dedication, it took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon, and the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, just tell us plainly. Now, in biblical interpretation, context always matters. So we believe in a normal, literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of Scripture. In other words, we take the Bible literally in a normal fashion, a normal, readable fashion, unless there's a reason for us not to. And so as students of the Bible, we recognize metaphors and similes and other figures of speech. But when we come to Scripture, we take it as it is in a normal, literal, historical, grammatical fashion so that we can properly interpret the Bible. Interpreting the Bible is absolutely huge in the life of the Christian. If we don't have the the skill and the tools to be able to interpret the Bible, then we can miss it. And so context always matters in biblical interpretation, understanding the historical setting, the time frames, which has been uh, so vital in our consideration of the gospel of John, understanding the culture, the language, again, recognizing figures of speech, considering the words around the words so that the situation being considered is in plain view, because context always matters. In fact, someone once said that the three most important things in biblical interpretation is Context, context, context. It is a blessing, and it's much more easy these days to be able to get to a proper interpretation of Scripture because there are so many accessible helps and tools that are available to us today. We want, as Bible students, to be able to accurately interpret Scripture That should always be our goal, because after all, if we get the meaning of the Scriptures wrong, that could lead us to all kinds of things. First, wrong interpretation can easily lead to wrong living. But second, wrong interpretation cannot lead us to wrong living, but we could then lead others astray as well. So if we interpret the Scriptures wrongly, we can pass along a wrong interpretation to other people and influence them to misunderstand the Bible as well. And this is especially troublesome for those who are teaching others. And so this is why in James chapter 3 and verse 1, James said, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. And so those of us who stand before you here in our church, we will incur incur a stricter judgment because we are passing along our understanding of the Bible to you. And so this is why we are so particular about what the Bible says, what the Bible means. Uh, uh, It wasn't too long ago that I met a so-called pastor who told me, At their church, they don't like to get into the weeds of the Bible and get too precise with doctrine. They just want to love Jesus, he said. As if Jesus doesn't really care about being precise about what he says as long as you love him. And that's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. Jesus specifically spoke about what loving him looks like in John chapter 14 and verse 15, when he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So loving Jesus is getting into the weeds about what he said and what he expects from his sheep. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul made the point to Timothy that accurate interpretation is paramount. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And so the accurate handling of the word of God, literally cutting it straight, is absolutely essential for the Christian. And as I said last time, Um, that is on you. It's on me as a teacher and as a preacher, but you should scrutinize everything I say and everything that every teacher says by the word of God. You'll stand accountable, just like I will. I'll stand accountable for what I have taught you, but you'll stand accountable for what you've received and what you believe and what you put into your life. Accurate interpretation is absolutely essential in the life of the the Christian, And so with all that in mind, we get some help here with the context, especially the setting in which this new account takes place. And I say new account because more time has passed from when Jesus had this encounter, He he heals the blind man, uh, the the Pharisees come and they confront Him, all of that situation, uh, there's been some time now that has transpired. So there's a time gap between verse 21 and verse 22. And so we ask the question as a Bible student, how much time has passed? Well, we're not exactly sure, but maybe around a month and a half to two months. But it says here that it's now winter in Israel. It's now winter. It's the cold rainy season in Israel at this time. And so our text says that Jesus is back in Jerusalem and it's the time of the Feast of Dedication. So this presupposes that he may have left Jerusalem for a time, but now he's back. And the way we're able to piece together the time frames is verse 21 was still at the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And beginning here in verse 22, it is now the time of the Feast of Dedication, which is now referred to as Hanukkah or the Feast of the Lights. And that's what Hanukkah means, by the way, is dedication, So the Feast of Dedication was not one of the feasts that was mandated in the Old Testament. It originated during the intertestamental period, which was the 400-year gap period between the closing of the Old Testament and the launch of the New Testament. It's called the intertestamental period. That's a 400-year period of time. And many of what we know as the apocryphal books, the non-canonical apocryphal books, were written during the intertestamental period of time. So this originated during that period of time, those 400 years between the Old and the New Testaments, and the Feast of Dedication that's mentioned here celebrated the Israelites' victory over Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the king of Syria, and all this happened before Jesus was born. So anyway, here it says in our text that the portico of Solomon was where they were gathering. It was a gathering place eventually for the early church. It's a covered section of the old Temple Mount area. And this is where Jesus is surrounded by a mob of Jews, and they shout out to him, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, meaning You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one sent from God to the earth. If you are the Messiah, if you are the Christ, then just tell us plainly. So this brings us then to the second step as we walk through this encounter, and it's the the situation. It's the situation. Look at verse 25. Jesus answered them, "'I told you, and you do not believe.'" The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so what happens? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So here Jesus answers their question. Again, he answers their question. He says, I've already told you who I am, and you don't believe. I've proven who I am by my works, meaning by his miracles, but you don't believe. And the reason you don't believe is because you are not my sheep. So as we've gone through the Gospel of John, we've seen that Jesus has intentionally revealed himself in a progressive way. But by the time of this encounter, he's told them very plainly and clearly who he is. But he goes back to the shepherd sheep metaphor, and he tells them that the reason they don't believe is because they're not a part of his flock. They're not his sheep. Because those who are his sheep know their shepherd. And this word know, again, is this Greek word gnosko that we considered a couple weeks back. And remember, it's an intimate knowing. It's an intimate knowing. Jesus' sheep know him and he knows his sheep in an intimate fashion. A couple weeks ago, uh, we had a funeral here Uh, for our friend Deb Gerlach. She suddenly died in her sleep the day after she was here in our church uh, to deliver something for the cafe. She had said that she was not feeling well, and so she went home, but she wanted to follow her obligation and honor that, and so she brought something for the cafe. She had a mask on, I remembers remember, it was a couple of weeks ago, so she dropped off the thing for the cafe, and she went home, and it was the next day that she passed away in her sleep. It was a shock to all of us. It was a shock to her family, and her family came from all over the United States to come to this funeral, and so as I preached it, I started off by saying that I've done a lot of funerals in my day. And that just kind of comes along with being a pastor. And so I've done a lot of funerals. And I've done a lot of funerals of people that I don't know. People that I have never met. Those are extremely difficult to do because I want to interject interpersonal uh, relationships I want to be able to interject real life stuff that I know about this person. And so those are always difficult. Those are always hard. But on the other hand, it's also very hard to do a funeral for someone that you know and someone you love. And I had a very special relationship with that. And so I was very sad in some ways that she unexpectedly passed away. But as I told the family, uh, she's in a much better place. Deb had a relationship with Jesus Christ. She knew Jesus. Jesus knew her. But as I shared with the group that day, I said, you know, this this is personal for me because I know Deb. I had a relationship with Deb. And this is the word that's being used here, gnosko. It's a relational, intimate knowing. It's not just knowing about someone, or not just knowing something about that person. It is a literal knowing. So husbands and wives, you know a lot about your spouse, but you know them in an intimate way. You know them in a special, intimate way. And this is the way that Jesus knows his sheep. He knows us in an intimate, personal way. And it says here in the text that his sheep know him, and he knows them, they know his voice, and they follow him. And all those sheep in his flock will receive eternal life, and they will never perish. This is the great truth of Scripture. So I want to just take a moment to drill down a little bit more on this knowing, this word gnosko, okay? So let's go back to 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter two, and again, the, the Epistle of John, in fact, all three of the epistles of John, first, second and third John, all written by the same author who authored the Gospel of John. So go back with me to First John chapter two, and let's begin to look at verse three. Again, when we see the word know here, it's the same word that John uses back in the Gospel of John. It's the Greek word gnosko. It's the intimate knowledge and intimate knowing. And so what he's talking about here is this is the test of knowing Jesus. This is the test of knowing God. So there are a lot of people that know a lot about God. There's a lot of people who know a lot about Jesus, but do they know him in a gnosco kind of a way, in an intimate way. And so here's one of the tests. Verse 3, "...by this we know that we have come to know Him." So in other words, how do we know that we've come to know Him? "...if we keep His commandments." The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know we are in him. This knowing is evidenced by a relationship. So how do we love Christ? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do we know that we know him? Because that should be our desire. That should be our heart's desire that we want to keep the commandments of Christ. That we actually want to get into the weeds about what Jesus said because we want to honor him with our lives. We want to obey him. We want to follow his commands. But for the person that says I have come to know him and they don't keep the commandments of Jesus, John says you cannot say that you know him if you don't keep his commandments. In fact, he says there in 1 John chapter 2 that you are a liar, the truth is not in you. My heart is burdened for those who say and I have family members that fall into this category, I have friends that fall into this category we may have people that attend our church that fall into this category. They say they know Jesus, but they don't live like it. They don't live like they know Jesus. They're not following the commands of Jesus. I know people who say, I know Jesus as my Savior, and they haven't been in a church in 25 years. How can we say that we love Jesus when He is the head of the church? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He loved the church. He gave himself up for the church. How can we say we love Jesus? We have no connection to his church. We're not following his commands. This is an intimate knowledge. But he says here that no one will be able to snatch them Out of his hand. So go back to John chapter 10. Jesus is speaking of eternal security. That's what we call it in theological terms eternal security, everlasting life. This is the contradiction between spiritual life and spiritual death. So he's talking about eternal life, eternal security. And he says, no one can snatch them out of his hand. I mean, this is such great imagery. Who is strong enough, who is strong enough to pry back the fingers of God and take us out of his hand? I mean, how ridiculous to think that even the strongest man in the world, and I've met some strong guys before, I've met... Hall of Fame linemen that played in the NFL for 15 years. These guys make me look tiny. Their hands are twice as big as my hand. They are strong as an ox. I met this one guy one time. His name is Willie Rofe. He played for for the New Orleans Saints. He's in the Hall of Fame. When he shook my hand, my whole body shook. And I ain't that little. But I'm thinking, dude, I mean, strong as an ox. Willie Rofe These other guys that are in the Hall of Fame, the strongest men to ever play in the NFL, can bench press over 500 pounds. Really? Do we really think that they could pry back the fingers of God and remove those who are his sheep from his hand? Not even close. Absolutely preposterous to think that it could happen. Who is stronger than God? Who is strong enough? To take his sheep from his almighty hand. And then Jesus says unequivocally that I and the Father are one. And again, this is important to understand. There is one God. Okay? We can't say we believe in God, we know God, if we don't know who God is. Okay? So this is essential that we have an understanding of who the biblical God is, who, who is being represented in Scripture. We believe in one God, so we are monotheists, as opposed to polytheists, which means many gods, like the Hindus, would. they're, they're polytheists, they, everything's a God. We believe in one God, we're monotheists, and as we considered last time, we don't believe that there are three gods... Or three manifestations of God. We believe in one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. 1 Corinthians 8.6 Yet there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom all things, and we exist through Him. So you remember that, that God sent Jesus to the earth to reveal God to men. So if you want to know what God is like, God sends Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ, to come and to live among people and to show them who God is. So when he says, I and the Father are one, he's talking about this unity that there is within the Godhead. So we do not believe in three gods. We do not believe in three manifestations of God. We believe in three persons within the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to the earth to reveal God to men. So, as he's standing before this mob of Jews, he's there as not only a representative of God, but he is there as God. So, he and the Father are one, he's God in the flesh. He proved he was God, he said, by his works, but the Jews didn't believe him. Because as Romans one twenty one says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. We live in a world where there are millions and millions of foolish hearts that are darkened. People that you hang out with every day at work, They may be among this group of people. They know of God. God has implanted in their hearts that He exists. He's given them general revelation to show that He exists. But they do not know God. They do not know God in an intimate way. So they don't honor Him as God. They don't give thanks. Their foolish hearts are darkened. This is our mission field. This is our mission. When we consider these kinds of things, it should resonate within us that those people that we interact with, people that are in our family that don't know God, they don't have an intimate knowledge of God, they have no relationship with God, they do not know Christ as their Savior, the only way for them to know God is for someone to tell them who God is, someone to tell them who Jesus is. And this is our job. This is our responsibility. Somehow within the equation of God's sovereign plan to draw sinners to himself, he includes sinners like us to tell people about Jesus. And so we must be faithful in that. We don't save anybody. Somebody asked me one time, it's fairly recent, how many people have you led to the Lord, Pastor Dave? I said, zero. Zero zero yeah zero uh i've given the gospel hundreds and hundreds of times people have received the gospel they believed on the lord jesus christ and they were saved but i didn't do i didn't do anything I was just faithful with giving the powerful gospel message, Romans 1, 16 and 17. It is the power of God unto salvation. How are these people who have foolish, darkened hearts going to know anything about Jesus? We got to tell them. We have the truth. We have the gospel. We have the good news of what Jesus Christ came to the earth to do, eventually did. He died in our place on the cross of Calvary, and He is alive today. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and He's preparing a place for those who trust in Him, and He's coming again. There is an urgency to tell people about who Jesus is. But the Jews didn't believe Him. God in the flesh, is standing in front of these people. Can you even imagine this? I mean, they're in Solomon's portico, which is a a section of the old Temple Mount area with these colonnades, and it was covered. So the significance of this, it it was the rainy season, and so probably it Was raining. It might have been a little bit chilly. And so there was a little bit of a block from the wind. And so this is where Jesus is. And this is where the mob comes on him. They come right up on him. They are standing in the presence of God. They are standing with Jesus Christ, who is God. You know what's interesting to me? Is they knew just exactly what Jesus was claiming. I mean, that's clear from the text, right? They knew just exactly what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming that he was not only from God the Father, but he was one with the Father. He was claiming to be the promised Messiah, God in the flesh. And and for the fourth time here in John's Gospel, they tried to kill him. This is the fourth time. But just like all the other times, it was not yet the appointed time for him to die. Which brings us to the statement... From the Jews. So first, it's the setting. Second, the situation. Now, third, the statement. And this is a statement or a charge that the Jews make about Jesus. Look at verse 32. Verse 32 Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered, For a good work we do not stone you, but for what? Blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So again, Jesus says that he showed them many good works, meaning that he would performed many public miracles to show that he was God. And just as there are seven I am statements that we're working through as we go through the text in the Gospel of John, uh, there are also seven miracles Or seven works that were performed by Jesus that are recorded as well. And we've already studied through six of them. So we've already looked at six of the seven. In John chapter 2, we saw Jesus' first miracle, and that was turning water into wine at the wedding at Cana. That was a long time ago, a year and a half ago, I think, that we looked at that. Then in John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54, Jesus heals the nobleman's son. And then in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, he heals the man at the pool. And then in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, this is when he fed the 5,000. And that was 5,000 uh, men, 5,000 adults. Uh, so you add in all of the children, all of the women, and so on. That was a lot more than 5,000. But he, he feeds 5,000 miraculously. And then in John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21, remember he walked on the water. Um, and then in John chapter 9, He heals this blind man. The only miracle left in the Gospel of John, other than His own resurrection, but the only miracle left is found in John chapter 11. It's going to be the resurrection of His dear friend Lazarus. So Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha. They lived in Bethany right on the other side of the Mount of Olives. Because they had heard of or witnessed His miracles, Jesus asked them for which one of those works which one of them? Which one of the six that, I, that you've witnessed, which one of them are you trying to stone me? And they answer and say, we're not trying to stone you because of any of your good works, but because you are a man and you make yourself out to be God. They understood completely what Jesus was saying about Himself, right? They knew exactly what He was proclaiming. And this is always my point when I speak with Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons who deny the deity of Jesus. They claim to believe in Jesus, but obviously they deny what Jesus had to say about Himself. So rather than putting all of our eggs in the basket of John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and they changed that to in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God... But the whole Gospel of John, Jesus is proclaiming Himself to be the Messiah, the Anointed One sent from God. They know exactly what He's proclaiming. This is so clear here. So I don't need John one when I'm talking with Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons. We got the whole Gospel of John. We got the whole thing. So they... They, believe, they, they claim to believe in Jesus, the, the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons do, but they deny what he says about himself. They don't know him. It's not the real Jesus. So what do these people do? They throw out this blasphemy accusation again. It's not the first time that they've accused Jesus of being blasphemous. Blasphemy is defined as the act of insulting or throwing contempt, showing contempt or lack of reverence for God, and or the act of claiming the attributes of God. And that's exactly what Jesus was claiming. But what's interesting is that Jesus is not being blasphemous. They are. These people that are surrounding Jesus in the portico of Solomon, they're the ones that are being blasphemous. Because in their minds, how dare Jesus claim to be God? But that's exactly what He's doing here. Which then brings us to the fourth step, which is the strife. The strife. So first the setting, second the situation, third the statement, and now the strife. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. And that's a powerful statement, by the way, about the word of God, that the word of God cannot be broken. Verse 36, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Now, again, this may, may seem a little confusing here as I read it, uh, but let me help you make sense of what Jesus, I think Jesus is saying. Jesus is clearly claiming to be God, right? They clearly understood him to be claiming that he was God. So that's, that's off the table. So so because Jesus knows how seriously they uphold the name God, he uses this quote from the Old Testament to make his point. So here's what he's doing. He's saying, there were other unjust men who were called gods. He's referring to Psalm 82 and verse 6, where God Almighty rebuked these unjust judges of Israel, but in contrast, he, Jesus, is perfectly just and righteous. And so he goes on to say that he is indeed the Son of God, and if he doesn't do the works of his Father, then they would be right not to believe in him. But he does do the works of his Father. In fact, that is proof that that he is who he says that he is. And this makes perfect sense. And this is why we need to make sure in our evangelism that we take the time to let people know who Jesus is. I heard a very well-intentioned guy who was passionate about evangelism, a bit misguided, but he was very passionate about evangelism. And I was there at this time where he approached a person that he either didn't know or he hadn't seen in a long time. And here's how he opens the conversation. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Not, hello, my name is Fred. I know we don't know each other well, but I care about your soul. I would love to engage with you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then proceed to make very clear who Jesus is and what he did on the cross of Calvary for sinners who would believe in him. You see, well-intentioned but misguided, because this guy that he said this to didn't know who Jesus is. He knew Jesus was a historical figure and that, you know, that our dating system is based upon his, 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 his birth and his death. So he knew that Jesus existed, and that's not really a question, by the way, these days. Almost everyone acknowledges, because there were secular historians that recorded parts of the life of Jesus. So this isn't a debate that Jesus existed. Where the debate lies is, who is he? Who is he? And this is where this encounter is so important for us to understand. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And this is why... Later, Jesus' disciples will be asked, who do you say that I am? Because that means everything. Who we believe Jesus Christ to be. For folks to believe in Jesus for salvation, it's absolutely essential that folks know who Jesus is. So let me just encourage you. None of us are getting anyone saved. Okay? This is a work of God. A sovereign work of God. We saw that in John 6:44, John 6:57 where God will draw someone to himself. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We ain't drawing anybody. We're the mouthpiece of the gospel. So, Don't try to close the deal to get someone to pray a prayer so that we can say that this person became a Christian. Just take the time to explain who Jesus Christ is. The last thing we want to do is give someone a false assurance that they have believed in someone they do not know. Does this make sense? Don't worry about closing the deal, getting someone to pray a prayer. Just be clear with who Jesus Christ is and call men, sinful men, to believe in Christ, who he is and what he did on the cross of Calvary. This is absolutely essential that folks know who Jesus is. And Jesus had revealed himself to all these people. So now they're at a crossroads. Do they believe in Him or do they reject Him? And here we find that this group of Jews rejected Him. And this brings us to the final step, the fifth step, and it's the supposition. The supposition. We'll close it out with verse 39. Therefore they were seeking again to seize Him, and He eluded their grasp. And He went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing and he was staying there. And many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So they're trying to stone him. They try and seize him. But it says here again that he eluded their grasp. And again, I don't know this, but... It's speculated that this is another supernatural alluding where Jesus escapes because the time of his death had not come. And so the Lord goes away over towards the Jordan River where John the Baptist was very popular and where he had baptized people. And while Jesus is in the area, it says that many came up to him and said, you know, everything that John the Baptist said about you was 100% true. Remember, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ, right? His whole job was to announce the coming of the Messiah, announce the coming of Jesus. And so he he was baptizing people uh, upon their repentance of their sin, looking forward to the coming of Jesus. And so everything that John said about Jesus was true, they say. And what does it say? John the Baptist didn't perform miracles, but Jesus did. And so many believed in him there. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And so we we can't look at a passage like this and not ask the question, do you know Jesus? Jesus. Or do you just know about Him? Do you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Do you follow Him? Which means do you follow and keep His commandments? How committed are you to Him and His church? I want to close with a passage of Scripture uh, in, in Philippians chapter 3. I'm not going to opine much on it other than to read it. But turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. What was the Apostle Paul's greatest desire? What was his greatest desire? Look at this. Philippians chapter 3 beginning with verse 7. This is the great Apostle Paul who God used mightily. He was a persecutor of the church, persecutor of Christians. God knocked him down on the road to Damascus, opened his eyes to his truth. He believes in Jesus Christ, and he becomes a transformational missionary, the greatest the church has ever seen. What is his greatest desire? Verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. What does he say? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. When we talk about knowing Jesus as our Savior and Lord, that's the knowing we're talking about. Not just knowing about Him, but knowing Him in a personal, intimate way. What an example the Apostle Paul was. And as I said before, I always put myself in the situation that I'm studying. I'm always like seeming to wonder what it would be like to be there and to hear these mob of Jews standing and blaspheming Jesus, who is God, who has revealed Himself in all these different ways, as God has been clear about who He is, and they want to stone Him, kill Him. And Jesus endured it all. He endured it all. He eventually, when the time was right, he goes to the cross of Calvary and he does what we could not do for ourselves. He dies in our place. He takes the wrath of God upon himself for all who would believe in him. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Jesus doesn't care about religion. God doesn't care about religion. He cares about a relationship. Do you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord? And that word Lord, Greek word kurios, means master. Lord and master of your life. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you need Jesus, please see us today. Let's pray. Our Father... What a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. Thank you that you keep us secure in your hand. No one can come and pry your fingers back and remove us from you. You have saved us. You have given us eternal life. And so we thank you for that. Lord, may we grow in our understanding of you and our sanctification. May we grow in our appreciation for you and following your commands. And Lord, if there's someone here today that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior and Lord, I pray that You would do the work that You can only do and open their eyes to the truth of Jesus. We thank You and we love You. And it's in Jesus' name, the great I Am So we pray, Amen.